This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Amanda Smith, and here on Sporty, it's lessons from the masters. AFL great Kevin Sheedy is taking us back to school by way of choosing the greatest players and coaches of his lifetime. These men had great attitudes. You know, attitude to me is a subject like common sense. They're like math, science, English and geometry. Attitude and common sense, they are two very important subjects. And I try to express that when I pick people and select them, that they have something special about them. First up, though, you're going to meet the man who's getting inside the heads of Australia's best sports people. He's a kind of sport whisperer, although Ben Crow describes himself as a professional mentor and mindset coach. Ash Barty credits him with making her a better player and a better person, and she's the world number one tennis player, top earner and decent human being. Ben Crow has been one of the speakers at a meeting of great sporting minds that's been on in Canberra this week at the Australian Institute of Sport. Now, Ben, I guess everyone's known for a long time that sport is as much a mental game as a physical one. But for you, what does performance mindset mean? I think in simple terms, in the moment of performance, how I can focus my attention on the best version of me and the things I can control and let go of and accept the things I can't control. Um, about 99% of all performances are sabotaged through the fear of failure or focusing on the result. And uh, if we're connecting with these things we can't control, but wanting to control them, it's effectively the definition of anxiety or, or stress or pressure. So whether you're a young girl or boy at school getting nervous before a race or before an exam, or you're an athlete getting anxious in sporting performances, um, anyone can really learn and understand what the best version of them looks like. Well, how do you get to that point or how do you get people to that point? Now, the concepts that guide you, as I understand it, include things like authenticity and vulnerability and also storytelling. Now, none of those immediately say sport to me. So can you unpack each of those a bit? How do you work with sports people on authenticity? Mm, it's kind of helping someone work out first and foremost, who am I? and really disconnecting with the persona and focusing more on, on the person. So I think Ash, uh, as you mentioned, is probably a great example of someone who's really connected with her authenticity and given herself permission to be imperfect and, and full of struggle and, and is going to fall down and make mistakes, but, but also separating and disconnecting from the identity because playing tennis is what she does, but it's not who she is. It doesn't define the depth of Ash Barty. Yeah. And when you can understand that, and for athletes in particular, they get put into a system at a, at a really young age and they can be focused too much on the persona and you can often forget the human qualities and, and get caught up in the industry to the detriment of our own, I guess, human frailties. Well, that leads us to vulnerability as well, I suppose. Again, how do you work with sports people on that concept? Yeah, I could almost simplify. There's two types of people on the planet today, um, not just in athletic sense, those who see vulnerability as a strength and those who view it as a weakness. And if you view vulnerability as a weakness, 
typically three things occur. You're very closed, closed-minded, defensive, feel like you're on the back foot being attacked kind of thing. You're not very compassionate. And that won't obviously create the connection that we're looking for as, as humans. And we're hardwired for connection, neurobiologically hardwired for, for connection as human beings. And that gives purpose and meaning to our life. However, if you view vulnerability as a massive strength and you lean into the risk and the uncertainty and the emotional exposure, the opposite three things happen. You're more open, you're more open-minded, you're more curious, creative, innovative. You're incredibly compassionate, first for yourself. And if we, if we can be kinder to ourselves in that way, then we'll be more compassionate to others and then you'll create a beautiful, amazing connection. Uh, and that's kind of what Ash, the journey that Ash has been on over the last couple of years. Yeah, and well, that's what it, I want to know, how, how this embrace of vulnerability applies to sport. Oh, every athlete is a human first. We're so caught up in this perfection myth, Amanda, where we think we have to have the perfect body or the perfect job or the perfect relationship. You know, we're taking fat from our bums and putting it in our breasts and our lips and so forth. And we're all caught up in this external manifestation. You know, you go through the whole day feeling like you haven't achieved enough and you wake up in the morning feeling like you haven't had enough sleep. But we're all caught up in that I'm not enough something. Um, don't get me wrong, you can be in search of excellence and self-improvement because you can achieve those things, but you can't achieve perfection. And once you realize that, the antidote to the perfection myth is the ability to celebrate imperfections and embracing vulnerability gives you the permission to celebrate those imperfections, but also to be able to say, I am enough. That's a pretty cool place to be in because from that foundation as a human, you can go, go after your goals without any expectations that you can achieve those goals. But I guess that's called living. Yeah. <laughs> well, wh while the business of sport I is winning, I do sometimes wonder, Ben, how genuinely fulfilling sporting achievements are. I mean, we assume that winning is fulfilling, but is that always the case? No, not at all. Achievement without fulfillment is, I guess, the ultimate failure. Um, and, and when we unlock our purpose mindset, and purpose mindset is the third of the three mindsets with connection and performance that you reference, but purpose mindset is really, are you just here to show up and make a lot of money and win, or, or fundamentally you stand for something, you believe in something, there's something that lights you up, there's something you want to be famous for in that sense of contribution, and you, in that way, your, your perspective shifts from I to we, and you shift from this sense of expectation and, um, and entitlement to one of appreciation and gratitude and you kind of shift from, you know, resume virtues to eulogy virtues. And when you start to shift your perspective in that way, you, your life does start to become a lot more fulfilling and you can dimensionalise it way beyond just being an athlete on the field. Something else I wonder though is, do you have to live up to your potential? You know, maybe someone like um, Nick Kyrgios is having more fun not winning, uh, not effectively living up to his potential. You know, what's wrong with not caring about being the best you can be? Yep. Um, whatever his goals are, if he feels like he's achieving those goals as a person and as a, and as a tennis player, yeah, um, who are we to judge? Um, and that's the problem with societies. We put these expectations on others, the demon of expectations, and separating goals from expectations. So, you know, when Kathy Freeman was under pressure for the 2000 Olympics and she was asked the question, how is she dealing with the pressure or the expectation? And she said, I'm not. Um, I'm not dealing with the pressure of expectation of others because I don't focus on what others think of me or think of my performances. Yes, I, it was, it was extraordinary. Yeah. You know, I think she used a beautiful analogy that, you know, it's like being inside a house and there's a massive storm outside and she's looking at the storm through the window and she can see it, but she can't hear it. 
When you can separate your goals from others' expectations, life becomes simple. Well, now, the the other concept that you work with that I mentioned is storytelling. What's that about? Yeah, the process involves helping an individual understand their life story, um, but also understand that their life story is not their life. It's just their story. And we are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. And you're the author of your life story. So the good news is you get to write the ending. But most importantly, you get to go back and reframe certain crucible moments that, um, you know, these life-altering moments that are laced with meaning. And in some occasions, these, these crucible moments or these shame stories we're telling ourselves is what's effectively holding us back from going after our goals and realizing our potential. So going back to these memories or these stories that are holding us back and reframing that storytelling, trying to create, I guess, a more positive affirmation-based story on, on who I am. And then from that place, then I can work out what I want. Um, leaders and teams, and I think Richmond Football Club has been a, a great example of become a, a team of storytellers, if you like, over the last over the last couple of years. And, and Alistair Clarkson has been a, an absolute champion at Hawthorne over, over a long period of time as well. Well, how would you say all this is different to the kind of thinking, the kind of mindset that those you're working with have probably grown up with around sport? Yeah, a lot of these themes are counterintuitive to how we think, um, certainly alpha males and certainly stoic Aussie alpha males around, you know, celebrating vulnerability and embracing imperfections um, and the power of storytelling. So they're counterintuitive to, to how we're thinking today, unfortunately, as a human race, because we're also caught up in this obsession with self, this I versus we, and we've become self-absorbed, self-obsessed. We start comparing ourselves in that FOMO sense. We've created this thing called a selfie. There's now a billion selfies taken every day. Now, the problem with that is if you're focused on yourself, you're suffering. You know, we don't call it suffering. We call it stress or anxiety or worry or so forth. Um, and as a consequence, we start craving recognition. Yeah, we start caring what people are thinking about us or, or saying about us, and we try and be that person. And when that happens, we sort of lose our authenticity. So to make shifts from I to we, you know, start thinking about others, caring about others, to make their day to serve them, you know, unfortunately, some of these are a little bit kind of counterintuitive to how we're thinking. Well, now, of course, individual athletes and sports teams, because fundamentally they are in the business of winning, have from time to time experimented with some pretty way out there wacky ideas. You know, footballers being asked to walk on hot coals always comes to to mind for me. (laughs) Some of these things might work, some won't. From the perspective of the the sports team or individual, though, how are they to know that the the latest fad or guru is, is the real deal? Yeah, you're right. Everyone's looking for that competitive advantage. Um, everything we're talking about at the moment, any good teacher or preacher or parent would be uh, acutely aware of these principles. Purpose mindset, I think Mark Twain said over a hundred years ago that the two most important days in our life are the day we're born and the day we find out why. <laughs> um, and especially around purpose and vulnerability, the two most watched videos on the planet is Simon Sinek's Start With Why and Brene Brown's Power of Vulnerability. Now, those two videos alone have had almost a billion views. 
So this isn't Ben Crow's, you know, principal sermon on the mount kind of thing. Um, this is what the whole world is craving, a craving of purpose and perspective and being able to take off that mask and that armor and kind of just let ourselves be authentically seen, which creates that connection that we're looking for. Um, so there's probably just some blockages in terms of the way that teams are probably focusing or, or focusing on certain things to the detriment of the human connection. And individuals or organizations or teams that really get that sense of purpose and that sense of connection, um, but also have been able to identify where the distractions are, whether it's an obsession with results or, or focusing on things they can't control, um, and can simplify that sense of awareness and attention and mindset, and then give themselves permission to set big audacious goals or dreams and put that out in the universe. It's pretty exciting to see, um, see what can be achieved when, when you kind of get that, that formula right. So outside of the sports people who you've worked with, Ben, who's someone you admire for how they approach and conduct their sporting career? Um, Roger Federer um, has been a fascinating one. We talked about that shift from expectation to appreciation. Most, most of the world don't realise that Roger kind of focused his whole life on three words, humility, gratitude and humour, right? So if you see Roger being interviewed at the Australian Open after the game, the first thing he does is kind of pump up the opposition player. You know, even if he's beaten him six love, six love, six love, he'll say, great guy, love him in the locker rooms, had an off night tonight, but, you know, he's going places. The second thing he does is gratitude. He'll say, I'm so lucky to be here at the Australian Open. You guys are the best. And I'm so thankful to be here with my wife and, and twins and family. And then the third one is humour. You know, there's not a shred of evidence in favour of the idea that that life is serious and he's an entertainer, right? So he'll try and make the crowd laugh with that self-deprecating Swiss giggle or, um, you know, or kind of hang it on Jim Courier, the, the interviewer and so forth. Now, those three principles don't have anything to do with playing tennis, but they have everything to do with the perspective required to become the greatest tennis player on the planet. Mm. Um, Andre Agassi is probably another athlete that I've been in awe of. And if you haven't read his book or your audience haven't read his book open, it's the most mm. successful sports book on the planet, which is fascinating, right? Because Andre wasn't the biggest tennis player and tennis isn't the biggest sport in the world. But in terms of understanding connection and celebrating imperfections and, and finding purpose and meaning, Andre, you know, he blew out to 141 in the world. But from that finding his purpose, which was way beyond just playing tennis and more around education and subsequently set up a billion dollar business with Michelle Obama and and a few other ambassadors in North America. And I think he set up 64 charter schools and, and connected with millions of kids who are at risk of not getting an education. You know, and, but also um, he was one of the first tennis players to say, we, not I. Ash Barty is probably the second that I've noticed. And then you know, found love, found Steffi Graf, had two beautiful kids, um, and then got back to his tennis as well. Went from 141 in the world back to number one in the world and, and won another four grand slams. So um, I guess they're the athletes that I'm most in awe of in terms of the courage that they can then teach the rest of the world as well. Yes, it's impressive and inspiring. And I feel like we've just been given a masterclass. We've just gotten a little glimpse into how Ben Crow gets inside the heads of the sports people who seek him out. People like Ash Barty, the world number one tennis player, like Trent Cotchen, the captain of the AFL Premier's Richmond, like the world champion surfer Stephanie Gilmore. I'm going to listen more carefully to how they talk now. And Ben Crow is a professional mentor and mindset coach. Ben, it's fascinating to have you join us on Sporty. Thank you. My pleasure, Amanda. All the best. You 
could quite legitimately call Kevin Sheedy an icon of Australian rules football as its longest serving and most successful player and coach. For one, he coached the Essendon Football Club from 1981 all the way through to 2007 and that included four premierships. He's also been a very big personality in the game for a long time. And Kevin Sheedy is now the author of Icons of Footy, not about himself, but about 21 players and coaches he's chosen as the greatest of his lifetime. And Kevin, first of all, why do you choose the word icon rather than champion or even legend to describe your all-time favourite footy players? I think legend can be overused. and you know, Some of these guys aren't legends in the AFL, by the way. You have to pass criteria to be a legend in the AFL. I think Icon's different. It's about why you want to differentiate who you feel have been special in your life. These men had great attitudes. You know, attitude to me is a subject like common sense. They're like math, science, English and geometry. Attitude and common sense. They are two very important subjects. And I try to express that when I pick people and select them, that they have something special about them. Well, one thing you're known for, Kevin, is your very active role in supporting and promoting Indigenous players uh, and involvement, for example, in establishing the AFL's Indigenous Round. So it's no surprise that a number of Indigenous players figure in your top 21. And I'm now going to speak uh, about one of those players who has died, Graham Polly Farmer, who died in August this year. He played in the 1950s and 60s in the Waffle, the WAFL for East Perth and later West, West Perth, Perth uh, and in the VFL for Geelong. First of all, why was he called Polly? He, he actually had a limp. He'd had yeah. polio when he was a kid. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it came out of that area, to be honest, yeah. But Polly Farmer's funeral was amazing because they took his cast down through the Polly Farmer Freeway. Now, not many this people have got a freeway named after him. No. What was special for you about the way Polly Farmer played? Or oh, he's handball. And why is that important? Why was that well, handball special? Well, handball opened the game up. He could handball a ball further than anybody, and he taught people you can handball with extreme accuracy. Now, we had not seen that. We had a hand pass in the game called a flick pass, where you just could flick it out with your open hand, but they were normally sort of three and five and two metre little hand passes. Polly came in and just hit the ball strongly right out into the open space more than anybody in the game at, at that time. Well, Polly Farmer played in an era when racist taunts from other players would have been pretty standard. Mm. How, how did he handle that? I think he had a very relaxed, tough inner spirit and he would speak quietly and definitively. I never worry about that. My job was to win the ball and play great football and brush all those racial taunts away. Mm. It, it, it's a way of taking control of the situation, of course, but mm. not one you'd want uh, players to have to do nowadays, I think. No, no. And I think that, you know, when you see, I mean, I coach probably 30, I've recruited maybe 30 Indigenous boys at Essendon, and it's a great uh, honour for the club to do that. Because when we actually got Michael along, uh, he was just such a fantastic person for us to learn about Indigenous cultures, particularly in the Tiwi Islands. And then, of course, along come Gavin Wanganeen and Derek Kickett and Cockadoo Collins and Dale Kickett. And then, of course, it was up and running. 
to give them the belief and the love and the care that they should have, which wasn't happening in Victoria because up until uh, Michael Long and Nicky Winmar, there was only 28 Aboriginal men play in the VFL in 140 years. Well, the next player I want to talk about is one who you coached, who had a glorious playing career, who retired as, as a player from the Essendon Football Club the same year you finished there as coach, Yep, who then became coach of Essendon a few years later, mm. and that's James Hurd. <clears throat> James Hurd, who went from beloved, really, from, you know, the golden boy to being vilified over the the doping scandal saga, yeah. Yeah, that emerged at Essendon when he was the coach there, and that meant he and... and 34 players were suspended. What do you think of the way that James Hurd was treated uh, professionally and by the, the general public at that time? I thought it was pretty harshly done by. And I say that because I know that the AFL, in the end, fined the club, I think, maybe somewhere near $2 million for bringing the game into disrepute, which is, you know... Sounds awful when you, you agree that players can have a needle in their stomach to uh, take supplements, but here we have, on one side, you don't mind it in society when you're a diabetic. But when a sports person does it, well, that's terrible. That, that's yeah, but that's, I mean, that, that's the whole fundamental Getting point it, about, yeah. about performance-enhancing drugs in sport, yeah. that they're banned because it's, it's an unfair advantage. It's not about life-saving therapies. Right, but... Every player in every sport has supplements. They just drink them. That was the difference. Essendon decided, whilst James Hurd was coach, that they would actually inject that supplement. Now, no one knows what the supplement is, obviously, still. And, of course, there's never been one positive drug test. I find that absolutely amazing. So all of this happened under James Hurd's club leadership. And the, the but, whole thing affected <clears throat> him so badly that he did try to take his own life. Yeah. That's how I can get you. I mean, in the book, you quote him describing his mental state at the time as being, uh, he says, it's like you're at the bottom of a dark well and someone's throwing bricks at your head. Correct. And every time you try to get up, another brick hits you. It's a powerful description of mm. depression, isn't it? He, he, bring, he brings his silent guns out and says, this is what happened. That's how it happened. And eventually one day you'll all read the truth. What makes James Hurd one of your 21 icons? He knew the game on the footy field. He knew the game as it was going to unfold. And then the, the thing that really stood out, he was always the fairest player. And that's why I sort of let people know that, that I don't think he'd ever do anything wrong and I just know he's a very good person. Well, now, Kevin, all those you've chosen for your top 21 were certainly great players, but some left their mark on the game in other ways. Now, Alan Aylett, for example, yes, he played 200-plus games for North Melbourne in the 1950s and 60s and captained the team, but it's after his playing days that you dub him the greatest visionary the game has seen. How so? He pushed us into the AFL, Alan Aylett. Well, yes, sowing the seeds for nationalising the game for and the, the Swans VFL to, to become the AFL. South Melbourne. To Sydney. To the Sydney Swans. Yeah. And yeah. that was a deal that he had done with a rugby league person. And in Sydney, they needed to get um, the Sydney cricket ground needed to be used more than once or, you know, twice a year. So they needed another sport there. So um, And you can't play rugby league on a cricket ground. It was a look, it was an amazing period for the Swans. So that's the first 
really major step. The VFL changed over into AFL. We brought the national draft in and West Coast Eagles come in. So they were the very iconic, if I'm allowed to say that, years of Alan Aylett's career. Not without controversy, though. There are lots of people who didn't want to nationalise the game. Yes, well, I think that we've been very selfish in Victoria and we've often stolen a lot of players from other states and claimed them as our own. Kevin, what was your very first thought when you got wind of this notion of expanding the league across Australia? Great. Yeah, I've been going to... Because? uh, Well, because I just felt that um, there was no recognition in the other states from Victoria unless you pulled a player out of, you know, West Australia League or the South Australian Footy League. Well, now we're the, probably the best national football code. We're the only country in the world that has four football codes, which we, we have really created a great menu for our youth and our fan base. But um, I think the best thing is that we did go national, yeah. Well, over over your time, the game of Australian football has changed a lot. Now, I've got some interesting stats here. In 2001, the average number of tackles per side per game was 36. In 2018, it was 64. In 2001, goal accuracy was 60%. In 2018, 47%. How have you seen players change over your time in the game? I mean, it sounds like they grab each other a lot more and kick far fewer goals. Well, it's true. And the reason is the coaches. Yeah, Ma- like Mainly you. the coaches <laughs> have brought in tackling as um, a part of the game that had to be improved. And so they're brought in tackling and grappling coaches from rugby league. And that's one thing we have learned from rugby, and rugby league in particular. Uh, the accuracy for goal kicking is down because our coaches through the sports science department don't want players kicking at goals at training that often. Isn't, isn't kicking goals the way you win games? Well, it is. I mean, there's two areas of goal <laughs> kicking. One is we've actually improved our goal kicking in snap shooting. So we keep more exciting goals from angle shooting. Rather than set shots. Yes, And, of course, as soon as you kick a goal, you've got to run off the ground now, which is pathetic. So blame the coaches for that too. So Why do you have to run off the ground? Well, because head coaches are too soft in regard to challenging the sports science coaches that if you get that goal, you're going to need that one and a half to two minute break. So you kick a goal and you need a little rest. And I just think it's over the top. Do you love the game now in the same way that you did when you started out? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, because I think it's done more than when I started out. In what way? Well, it's reached more Australians. And I think that there's more opportunities where we've helped kids. Like when I played football, there was only two-size footballs. Now you've got little footies for kids' hand sizes. Well, that would never happen until we changed that. Um, And being the first development officer, which I was appointed in the, um, the VFL, um, so my job was to go around to a lot of schools doing football clinics in the clubs. We always gave them a dozen memberships to each, each school and every club. Now, you know, it's quite amazing when people say, how does Richmond get 100,000 members? Well, because Richmond in the 60s and 70s and 80s were very, very good to the schools and, and clubs in the area. They got their membership when they were little kids. So I think those sorts of things have held the game in good stead. Not saying everything's right, but of course, the biggest development in most any sport in, in Australia is AFL women.
Yeah, well, surely with the AFLW and, you know, more and more teams coming into the Women's League, there's going to have to be a, um, you know, we've got a father-son rule, but a father-daughter rule and maybe further down the track, the mother-son <laughs> rule and a mother-daughter rule. I've got no doubt that that will eventually follow because we know it's been successful in the AFL. Men's. And Kevin Sheedy's Icons of Footy is his account of his greatest players and coaches. It's a beautifully produced book too, Kevin. Lots of great photos and lovely to share some time with you here on Sporty. Thank you very kindly. And Sporty is produced by Nadia Hume and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.